This is Inside the Writer's Head with Jessica Strasser, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2019 Writer in Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Jessica Strasser. Hi everyone, this is your writer in residence, Jessica Strauser, and I am coming to you from a big occasion for us here at the library. This is our annual passing of the torch, changing of the guard, where I host my final episode of Inside the Writer's Head for the 2019 writer in residence term and introduce to you your 2020 writer in residence. I am so excited about what's in store for all of you in the year to come. But before we get to that, I wanted to take a minute to thank all of you who've been listening this year, everyone who I've met at Library Branch book clubs or at my office hours every month or workshops downtown or books by the banks. It's been an amazing honor to serve as the library's literary ambassador and to have connected with so many patrons who've shared their own passions and insights with me. And I look forward to continuing to serve Cincinnati's writing and reading communities however I can in the years ahead. If you look in December at the library's blog on their main homepage, I'll be posting the final requirement of this term, which is an excerpt of the novel that I wrote this year while I was your writer in residence. It's the story of two half-sisters who discover the other exists from a mail-in DNA test, And it has a big life or death moral dilemma at the center and a very twisty, rocky path to redemption. It's something a little bit new for me. And I'm working with a new editorial team at my longtime publisher, St. Martin's Press. And their enthusiasm for this book is humbling, to say the least. It'll probably be out in early 2021. So this is the first official sneak peek and it'll be posted with links to ways that we can stay in touch as well. Um, I'm very accessible online, on social media, through my website. Even if you see me around town, please don't be a stranger. Uh, This year has enriched my writing life in ways that far exceeded my expectations, and I will be forever grateful for this opportunity. So I'm here today with your next writer-in-residence for 2020, and I'm so happy for her and for all of you to have her. Uh, Danny McLean reports on race and reproductive health. She is a contributing writer at The Nation and a fellow with Type Media Center, formerly The Nation Institute. Her writing has appeared in Time, Slate, Talking Points Memo, Color Lines, Ebony.com, The Rumpus, and other prestigious outlets. In 2018, she received a James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism. Her work has been recognized by the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association, the National Association of Black Journalists, and Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Danny was a staff reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and has worked as a strategist with organizations including Color of Change and Drug Policy Alliance. Her book, We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood, was published in April 2019 by Bold Type Books, formerly Nation Books. Danny, welcome to Inside the Writer's Head and congratulations. Thanks, Jessica. I'm very excited to be here with you. 
So I admit that I had uh, read some of your work and I had seen your book and I had no idea that we lived in the same city. Um, Could you start by telling us about your connection to Cincinnati and how you came here and how long you've been living here? Sure. Well, I'm a Cincinnati native, proud Cincinnati native. Um, I was... I grew up in Camp Denison, Ohio, which it's funny because when I was growing up, um, even native Cincinnatians had never heard of Camp Denison. That's changing a little bit, I think, because of the Loveland bike trail. I was just going to say, I bike through Camp Denison. Exactly. So now people have heard of it. But um, when I was growing up, what is now the Loveland bike trail was just um, that that path is um, used to be railroad tracks. So it used to just kind of be like a dirt um, it used to be a dirt path, but, um, so anyway, I grew up in Camp Denison and, um, I grew up in the house that my grandfather's grandparents built. So I'm a long time, you know, I'm an, um, at least a fifth generation Ohioan. Um, and yeah, so I left here at 18, uh, to go to college in New York city. And, I really stayed away for the better part of the next 20 years. I did come back uh, when I was in my mid-20s, and I taught at Clark Montessori High School. I taught social studies there for a couple of years. Uh, But then I returned home about four years ago. And, um, yeah, it's good to be back in my hometown. It's a place that I think some people leave home and kind of um, uh, never come back or, you know, only come back once or twice a year. That's never really been my relationship to Cincinnati. It's always been a place that I'm excited to come home to and that I've sp- tried to spend as much time here as possible, regardless of where else I've lived. So your family has been here the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. My mom still lives in the house that I grew up in, which is the house that she grew up in, in Camp Denison. Okay. And now you're raising a daughter here. Correct? I am. Yeah. My daughter and I live in Northside, um, a community that I love living in and um yep she is in preschool and um it's great to be home and and raising her in such close proximity to my family that is great as well her dad is a cincinnati native as well so her uh, paternal grandparents are here as well that's really nice that you can have that opportunity it makes big difference having family nearby um So your writing career has covered a lot of different terrain and not just, you know, geographical terrain, New York City and everywhere else you've lived. Can you talk about kind of how you came into your own as a writer, uh, that path and leading up to, I guess, where you find yourself now? Uh, You know, I always remember my mom gave me a journal when I was probably seven years old and I wrote in it pretty um, faithfully, certainly through high school. And I think I kept a journal, you know, in, in college as well. Um, I remember being in high school, I went to Indian Hill kindergarten through 12th grade. And I remember being on staff at Chieftain, which was the school, our school newspaper. And I wrote features. I wrote like movie reviews and profiles of, um, students and teachers. And that was my introduction to journalism. And I just you know, I just loved it. I loved interviewing people. I loved reporting. Um, and so when I got to college, I worked for different literary magazine. I worked for a um, literary magazine on campus called uh, Roots and Culture. What was your major in college? I was a history major. Yeah, okay. I took a lot of history and sociology. And um, so, yeah, I worked for the our literary magazine in college, and I also did um, theater reviews for one of the 
campus newspapers, which was incredible because I, um, you know, I was in New York City, so I was I was like seeing Broadway and off Broadway plays at like 19 years old and writing about it. It was incredible. Um, and then I freelanced for different um, kind of New York City based publications. I uh, started doing that probably while I was in college and in my early 20s. And, you know, I freelanced for a long time. When I moved back here to Cincinnati, I um, became friends with Kathy Y. Wilson, who was the first writer in residence. And she got me started at City Beat. So I wrote for her. Um, and that was, I think, having that pathway through um, alt-weeklies was really, you know, an, an alternative weekly was really important to me. Mm-hmm. I think about that a lot because so many alt-weeklies are, have disappeared around the country. But that that used to be a way that so many of us got our start in journalism and professional journalism. And then from being back here and teaching at Clark and, um, you know, right, freelancing for City Beat, I went back to New York City and went to journalism school. And that was really my introduction to kind of more um, like traditional reporting. You know, from there I went to I worked for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel covering health initially and then education as a full time staffer. I interned at the Miami Herald on the Metro desk. So I was like you know, out chasing, like, reporting on fires and um, the kinds of breaking news events that that you cover when you're working on the Metro Desk. Um, So that was kind of my my initial path. So I was at the Journal Sentinel for two years covering schools, which was great because Milwaukee Public School District and Racine School District were very, um, just, like, very kind of racially diverse, um, socioeconomically diverse districts, and they were... um, it was a good, as a former teacher at that point, I loved covering schools and talking to students and, and teachers and parents. Um, and then from there, I kind of went back into freelancing, started, I, I worked actually full-time at a civil rights organization for four years called Color of Change, where I got to put a lot of my journalism and, and writing skills to use, but I was mostly doing like campaign strategy. And then in 2012, I got a fellowship to report on reproductive rights issues. And so um, since then, I've been a full-time freelancer, writing a lot for The Nation, where I'm a contributing writer, but writing for other publications as well. So, as you said, you started out with more straightforward reporting, and then it sounds like Color of Change was maybe a little bit of the turning point where you were able to kind of shift your focus or sharpen your focus of your writing to issues that were meaningful to you personally and also just meaningful to a lot of people besides just you know breaking news can you speak a little bit more to that shift and how it changed your approach to your writing um, from both a craft perspective and kind of a business career Mm -hmm. perspective that's a really interesting question I've never thought about it that way but in some ways you're right I think you know, when I was freelancing um, for like City Beat, for example, or even before that, there was a a, um, a paper that I freelanced for in New York called the Independent I N D Y Pendant. Um, that was like gave me an opportunity to cover. Um, I I remember writing about like incarceration and um, some some issues related to racial justice. So I I mentioned that because I actually and and I I neglected to mention this, but I actually one of my first journalism jobs outside of high school was with the Cincinnati Herald, which is Cincinnati's black paper. Mm. Um, I met Jan Michelle Lemon Kearney. Um, 
I, I was a receptionist at Taft Satinius and Hollister when I was <laughs> 17, 18, and 19. It was like my summer job and the job that I did when I would come home from school um, on holiday breaks. And at that point, Jan Michelle was, I think, an associate there. And so I met her. And she, when she and Eric Kearney um, came into control of the Herald, they brought me on to intern at the Cincinnati Herald. So I mentioned that to say that like way earlier in my career, I did work that was very close to my heart, um, reporting on black communities, covering issues that I cared a lot about. And then it was really after journalism school that I was introduced more to like I was still covering issues that I cared about, but it was really the approach to reporting that shifted. Um, I learned a lot about mm, kind of sourcing, I would say, and um, and writing for like a much more general audience, right? It was a major metropolitan daily, and when you're writing for that audience, you're writing for the newspaper of record in a city, your approach shifts a little bit. Mm -hmm. So then when I went to Color of Change, um, that writing was really different. It was not journalism. It was more, it's campaign writing. So it was more persuasive writing. Mm -hmm. I think that that laid the foundation for um, more of like the opinion writing and the op-eds that I've done in recent years. Um, Learning about framing, how you frame an issue for an audience and how you try to persuade them. So now I really think of myself as a reporter. My favorite work that I do is feature writing. I love writing long magazine pieces. Um, But I do have experience with some of that op-ed writing and persuasive writing. And I think Color of Change really gave me that foundation. And you've done this, um, these amazing pieces for, well, for the nation, for one, where it's sort of a combination of the two. There's definitely some reporting. There's a lot of history and... um, even some some analysis and maybe even some investigative reporting going on, but also you are a character in the story as well. So, which I think is a notable difference from other, you know, from being a strict journalist where you're just telling the story, you're not inserting yourself into it, but um, you've managed to create this blend where we're getting your own perspective, but then also this broader, more broadly reported um overview of an issue as well. Yeah, and that was a real shift for me. So I did not do that. I was very hesitant to make myself a part of any story. I'm not that interesting. And and (laughs) that's also what we're trained in journalism is like... um, To take your bias out of it a little bit. But also just to be very sparing with like, it's a rare occasion that you're actually part of the story. You know, and so like don't insert yourself where you're not needed. So the real shift for that with that came for me with the story that I wrote about the black maternal health crisis. That's really the first time I ever did that kind of story where I was writing about I was aware of this, the statistic that black women are three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy and childbirth related complications. I and I started writing a story about this while I was pregnant with my first child. And what I realized was that what was coming up in my research from the reading that I was doing in medical journals, the interviews that I was doing with um, clinicians and medical researchers, what I was learning was coming up in my own pregnancy. You know, I had fibroids. I had a hard time finding culturally congruent care. I um, was in the I was in a birth education class where my partner and I were one of very few other couples of color. Um, And so I was like, I actually am part of this story. Like Mm -hmm. I am seeing how my experience and my family's experience 
is very much related to the stories that I'm gathering about uh, women who have run into, in some cases, life-threatening challenges during their pregnancy and births. And so that was really the kind of pivot, pivotal moment for me where I felt comfortable and it felt relevant to insert myself in that story. That's, and it's so, it's so much more powerful because you did, mm-hmm. I think. Thanks. Um, you know, these are, it's, it's from a writer's perspective, I think, you know, we might, especially because you are, you publicly put yourself out there with anything, people can comment on it and reply and things like that. So maybe writers think about this more than other people, but these are such polarizing times where even things that we don't necessarily think of as political can get labeled political sometimes. Um, in your book title, you labor, label motherhood as political, and we can talk about that separately. But, you know, I, I it's been interesting to see what's happened in the writing community as the climate in the country has become more polarized because some people really shy away and don't want to enter the fray at all. And then other people feel more compelled and more empowered to um, to insert themselves in conversations that are meaningful to them. Um, whether you're thinking about inserting yourself in a story or not, just whether to cover it or, at all, mm-hmm. what are some things that you consider when debating whether or not to get into a political stance on a certain public on a certain subject in writing publicly and what do you think ultimately sways you to make your voice heard well you know the the kind of um my beat for the past seven years has been reproductive health reproductive rights and reproductive justice which are inherently political that is especially right now it's yeah, very political I mean, there are you know we've seen um state governments pass a number of bans on abortion as early as six weeks, which is generally before a person even knows that she's pregnant. Um, We've seen, I mean, Ohio is at the center. A lot of the media attention is focused on the South, like what's been happening in Georgia and Alabama, um, the shuttering of clinics in a place like Mississippi, Louisiana. But we're right, you know, here in Ohio, we're right in the middle of that conversation. We, the so-called heartbeat ban or our own ban on abortion before six weeks. Um, so we're right in the middle of that conversation. So, so my beat is inherently political, so I don't really have much choice. I think it would be dishonest and disingenuous to try to cover those issues from an apolitical standpoint, but also, you know, I don't write for, I don't write for the Inquirer. I don't write for the Journal Sentinel anymore. I don't write for the Dispatch. I'm so thankful for the work that those places do, especially because I used to work in that in those realms. So those are the people who are actually at the state house. They're there mm-hmm. talking to legislators when these laws get passed. They're giving you the procedural play by play of how these laws are passing, how these restric- restrictions are happening. I don't do that kind of reporting anymore. I do, as you called it, the more kind of analytical, um, the more analytical work on these issues. I write for the Nation, which is the this country's oldest uh, political news weekly. It was founded just, um, I think, in 1865 as a 
uh, publication that gave voice to um, abolitionists and and sought to cover like what it meant uh, for this huge portion of society, formerly enslaved people, to enter to become citizens. Right. So this is my home publication. It's an inherently political publication. It's a voice of the left. So I don't. So I I have a lot of freedom. I don't have to pretend as if I don't have opinions about abortion rights and contraception. I do have opinions about these issues. Um, now, does that mean that? Um, I think it's really important to hear and to cover closely and to think about what anti-choice advocates and legislators are doing. Like I'm not um, I think that's one of the benefits of having a grounding in newspaper journalism is I do know how to talk to people of all political stripes. I think that their perspectives are very important. Um, but I, you know, I'm also clear about who my audience is, and I'm clear that, that there's important investigative work and analysis that needs to happen to cover what um, abortion rights advocates are doing. You know, we just here in Cincinnati, Planned Parenthood shut down two of its clinics just in September because um, they basically lost access to Title X family planning federal dollars. The, that needs to be covered. And it needs to be covered from the perspective of, I think it's important that people, when people get their health care, they um, can hear that one of their options is abortion. Um, uh, so I would say because of what I cover, um, and I should also mention that in addition to covering reproductive health, I cover race and I cover like police accountability issues. And I did a lot of reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement and black liberation organizing more broadly. These are, these are inherently political issues and I don't shy away from those. Do you think it's gotten more difficult to do your job in recent years? To drown out the noise? That's a really interesting question. I don't feel like it's gotten more difficult. Um, I will say, you know, I was like on the way here, I was listening to NPR and they're playing the impeachment hearings Mm -hmm. um, right now that are going on. I think it hasn't gotten more difficult to do my job. But I, I mean, the biggest story is kind of like the White House right now. So it's not harder to do my job, but I think with good reason, Many of us have our attention on like the big the um, like democracy, basically, like um, and I, I I look at, you know, White House correspondents and the people who are covering what's happening at the highest levels of federal government, like their jobs are tough. I mean, they're doing some really important digging. Um, I do important digging, too. There are people who cover all kinds of issues who are still hard at work. And, and that's important. Um, I will say that, you know. Um, if if folks follow me on social media, they know that I'm not particularly uh, like I'm not really trying to engage in tough conversations on social media. I think that um, hopefully my work speaks for itself. And um, I think that 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 can be what makes it harder for folks to do their jobs when in addition to doing like long form reporting, they're also um having to defend themselves in their work online. Mm-hmm. I think that that, for some people do it marvelously and do it well, and I really admire that. For me, that would be a distraction. I try to stay really focused on my sources and really focused on the stories that I'm telling. Um, that's a really smart stance. Um, and I just want to say, like, some people do it really well. And I've had people say, well... You have a platform, and so it's your responsibility to be accessible. Forget about um, detractors, but to be accessible to your audience, and you should be more available to people online, and I hear that. 
Um, but just my approach has been to kind of keep my head down and to use social media as a place to share links to the reporting that I think is great and to the perspectives that I think are important. Because I think actually reducing things to sound bites is where we get into trouble sometimes. I mean, I am not good at sticking to 140 characters. Yeah. Personally, some people <laughs> do it so well, you know, but personally, that's not my my strong suit. Yeah. Not mine either. Not a lot of <laughs> 140 characters is not very much. Yeah. Um, so speaking of writing longer, uh, your first book came out in hardcover earlier this year. We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. And you tackle some of the themes that you'd written about in short form at book length. How did that uh, come about? Yeah, so earlier I said that my beat uh, covers reproductive rights, reproductive health, and reproductive justice. And when I first got the assignment, when I first got the fellowship, it was presented to me as, okay, your job is to cover reproductive rights, which, you know, so like the politics around um, reproductive health and particularly around reproductive uh, around access to abortion and contraception. When I looked at how other reporters were covering reproductive rights, it was largely around kind of these like political and policy battles around abortion and contraception. What I found was that as I started talking to um, particularly black women and people of color who were in the space, um, I learned about something that I had never really heard much about before, which is the reproductive justice movement and the reproductive justice framework, which um, advances the belief. It's it's rooted in in a human rights framework, and it advances the belief that uh, people have the right to have a child, to not have a child, and to parent the children that we do have in safe and healthy communities. What I realized was that the kind of traditional way that reproductive rights is covered is focuses on that right to not have a child, right? But I realized, wow, there are people who are acknowledging that right, but putting it within this larger context of like, and also sometimes we want to have kids. And sometimes we live in communities or we're dealing with like the pressures of police violence, or we're dealing with like subpar schools that really limit our ability to raise those kids in safe and healthy communities. And so I got very interested in that and in covering the organizing work um, that that placed, that placed itself within that reproductive justice framework. And so I blogged at The Nation for, I started in 2014, I probably finished blogging for the, I did it for a few years. And so that gave me the ability to really work a beat, to like write these kind of shorter stories, sometimes just 800 words or 1,000 words, where I was covering um, stories just in more of like a short form way. And then every once in a while, I would write like a 2,000 to 3,000 word piece maybe that took on a larger issue. One example would be I wrote this story about um, what's called long-acting reversible contraception, which is... um, Um, access to IUDs and hormonal implants, which are like these these, uh, contraceptive tools that are placed inside of you by a provider and they last for like any months to to years. Um, And I wrote about kind of like how the um, increasing prevalence of LARCs and particularly these demonstration projects where they were being made available to people at low or no cost because they're typically quite expensive. How these new programs were... Um, being received by communities that had histories with reproductive coercion and like um, forced sterilization. So on one hand, it's like these 
great forms of birth control being made available for free. On the other hand, you have these histories of people being sterilized against their um, against their will and without their consent. So how do we think about these these things alongside each other? So when I had the opportunity to write the book, it like brought it all together. I was able to. Um, I was able to dig back into topics that I had covered both as a blogger and as a features writer and expand on them, have longer conversations with people. And then beyond that, to really dig deep into this piece around our right to have children and to parent the children that we have in safe and healthy communities. The book is, um, it is part memoir, um, but it's really rooted in the interviews that I did with dozens of black moms and grandmothers around how they parent, what it means to raise black children at this particular moment in time. That is amazing. And Bold Type Books has the appearance of a small press, but it does have affiliation with Hachette That's right. uh, Book Group. So what's the uh, publishing experience been like for you? Yeah, it's been fascinating. Um, it is my first book, so it's all been brand new to me. I would say, um, so the book was, per- so, you know, it's all new. I got a literary agent um, who is amazing. Her name is Tanya McKinnon. And, you know, I I started, you know, the book came out in April of 2019. My daughter was two at the time. And I really credit my agent with, like, convincing me that I could write a book while being a new mom. Yeah. She really um, is hands-on um, on the editorial side. A lot of agents, as you know, their job is to take your book to market and to sell it. Tanya really, like, she, I mean, she had me doing writing exercises when my daughter was, like, weeks old, where she was like, just take five or ten minutes a day and just capture what your experience has been that day in parenting. And that really kept me working that muscle as a writer even when I was like learning how to breastfeed and doing all like dealing with having no sleep and doing all the things that you're doing as a new parent so that has been interesting learning what it means to write with an agent Um, I already was familiar with bold type books because they were formerly nation books and they are connected to um, type media center and to the nation so I was like familiar with um, the person who ended up becoming my editor, uh, the person who acquired the book, um, Alessandra Bastagli. Um, and then, so that was kind of like nice because I, because I had some, some familiarity with them. I, the process of working with my editor, Alessandra acquired the book, but my editor, she left and um, my editor was Katie O'Donnell. My editor is Katie O'Donnell, who's incredible. Um, she, you know, um, she took a lot of care with my copy and really it was great to be in this kind of months long conversation about what I was trying to do with her. Um, and then as you know, the writing of the book is only part of the process and you go Mm -hmm. into like marketing and that's been quite an experience. Um, I worked with the great team. So that's where really the power of Hachette comes in. Right. Usually because, if you're with a small press, there's not a lot of marketing exactly. to talk about unless you're paying for it. There you go. Yeah. So that was the benefit because the I have access to the whole market, marketing and publicity team at Hachette. And so um, working with Jamie Leifer, um, who, um, you know, she's like helping me get connected to the Atlantic and to time. And she's pitching, you know, telling them 
you know, we have this book coming out. Would you be interested in an excerpt or would you be interested in like um, Danny writing a, an opinion piece or some kind of news analysis that brings forward the themes of her book? So, you know, I'm used to just like pitching myself. It's incredible where you have when you have this experience, very well connected, um, you know, publicity person who's helping connect you to these big publications. Um, so I've had a really positive experience. I mean, I've talked to folks. I just was having dinner the other night with someone who was working with a very big publisher and their um, marketing person went AWOL like on publication day. I mean, you hear these horror stories Mm -hmm. and that's why people bring on their own pay out of pocket to bring on their own publicist. Right. I have you know, I felt I, I feel really good about the support that the book has gotten from my from my publisher. That's great. And you're still, you know, you're I don't know how much of it's you're doing versus they're doing, but you're still out and about. Right. You've been on some great panels. You're just in Detroit mm-hmm. or you're on your way to Detroit no, or I you just, were just you were Detroit just in Detroit. Weekend, yeah. OK. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another complaint that you often hear where a book gets a lot of attention, you know, a month after release. Mm-hmm. And then that's a month before and a month after. Right. And that's it. You had your chance, you right. know, but you're still out there, you know, yeah. getting the word out. And, and that's all about the team, right? So I also work with um, the Speakers Bureau at Allied Media Projects, which they, like, they got me that Detroit gig at the Detroit Public Library. Um, I work with another speaking agent who's pitching me to universities. So that's been the kind of lesson. Um, that person's name is Rolisa Tutwiler. Um, so that's been the lesson of publishing a book is like, oh, often people have these whole teams that are supporting them. It's so comforting not to have to do it by myself. I do hustle. You know, I'm yeah. I'm like promoting the book on my own, but I have these people who are also pitching me and helping me get connected to institutions and publications and outlets that that want, that are interested in the book. So what drew you to the writer in residence opportunity and why did you decide to apply? There are many reasons. So Kathy Wilson, is, Kathy Y. Wilson is a dear friend and mentor. So I remember when she got the writer in residence. Um, so it was five years ago for anyone who doesn't know. And or was it? No, I think it was five years ago. She was the very first ever writer in residence for the library. And she was a columnist for City Beat right. at the time. Right. So um, so I when I moved back to Cincinnati in 2002, I met Kathy um, through Dean Blaze, who's a um, amazing educator in town. And um, Kathy brought me on at City Beat as a freelancer. But then I also, like, we've just stayed in touch. The work that Kathy did at Cincinnati Magazine, I mean, I still have her clips from Cincinnati Magazine, and I still refer to them and basically, like, kind of reverse engineer them to think about how she reported them and wrote them. She's just, like, she's an incredible writer, and she really helped me understand that I could do long-form work, that I could, like, really do these in-depth feature pieces. Um, So anyway, I remember when she got it, and so that introduced me to the idea that the library even has such an incredible program. It just blew my mind that, like, I mean, it still blows my mind. Like, there's this person, this family in the community who loves the library enough to give this sizable amount of money every year to support a writer. I mean, we're so lucky that that's something that we have here in town. And not just to support the writer who's chosen, but to support the entire literary community in Cincinnati by making this writer a resource, you know who's available for free to all of them. I Somebody told me when I started that there are fewer than 
five programs like this in the whole country that are funded by a library foundation. Wow. It's amazing. Which is amazing. It's amazing. So, um, so I knew about it. Um, I, um, you know, I just felt like maybe I could get this if I applied. And so, I mean, I also just want to say, like, the library has been an important part of my life. My my mom, I still remember trips that my mom, um, my mom and I made to the library, to the main branch when I was a kid. I think even before I started kindergarten, um, we, you know, I, my mom and I lived in the city proper when I was very young. But then we moved to camp. We moved out to camp back out to Camp Denison. Um, back out for my mom. Um, and so then the Madeira branch became a place where I spent a ton of time, like as a kid. And then also in high school, my friends and I would go there. It's a place where I would work on projects. Um, I remember my friend, Darji Anderson, when we were old enough um, to catch the bus and come to the main branch of the library. It was like one of our first things that we did as probably like 13 or 14 year olds. We felt so grown up because we were old enough to catch the bus and come downtown to go to the main branch. Um, I take my daughter and I, you know, the story time at the Clifton branch with Mr. Eric and his guitar is amazing. So when my daughter was like a year, 18 months, we would go to that. My daughter now, um, you know, we go to the Northside branch, which is in our neighborhood. It's just like the library. I just believe in the library. It's like one of the few things that we have left that are the commons. You know, it's for everybody. You have access to all these incredible things and you don't have to pay for it. And so I just like it's just an important resource to me. And I just decided to apply just to see if I could um, become a part of this program. And I'm just thrilled that I'm able to, that I was chosen and so many ideas about, as a, about things that I can do as a journalist to make my skills accessible, to share my skills um, and to share my ideas with folks in the community who are interested. That leads to my next question, which is that each writer in residence has the opportunity to kind of within the requirements for the position also, you know, make it their own in the year that that they're at the helm. So what can you tell us? Can you tell us yet anything about what you have in store for the coming year? Yeah. So uh, just a few of my ideas. Um, and we've touched we've touched on all of these these things. I think. Um, so there's the content of my book. So there's like parent. I'm interested in parenting. My book is focused on black mothering, um, and I really center black women in the book. And I'm always excited when um, dads, when Asian, Latino, white folks, when people who are not parents say, I read your book and I got a lot out of it. And um, despite the title, the book is for everybody. And so... I'm really curious and curious about and interested in continuing a conversation about parenting with library goers. So that's one of my one of the um, workshops that I plan to do. We'll focus on that. Like I think parenting takes so much energy. I think often we don't have time to really reflect on the meaning that we're making through parenting for ourselves and for our families. And so I want to give people an opportunity to do that. I also think as someone who's published with a big New York publishing company. There are conversations that I want to have about different ways that we publish. 
what I have gone through, what you go through as someone who's published by St. Martin's Press, that's one experience. And there are also people who self-publish or people who are published by regional publishers. And that's really interesting as well. And so I want to have a conversation about that, about different ways that we can get our, our thinking and our writing into print. And then I also want to um, be a resource for folks who are curious about the media and who are curious about how to get their voices in the media. So that can be reporting, right, the different forms of reporting that we've talked about. But it can also be things like writing letters to the editor or um, writing an opinion piece that you submit and try to get published. Um, or like um, soapbox media are these different kind of local micro sites that we have. How do how can people participate in those? And so those are just a few of the things that I'm really excited about uh, weaving into the programming that that I'll be doing this year. That is amazing. I know I can think of so many people off the top of my head who are going to jump at those opportunities just from the people who I've met this year. And I'm sure you're going to reach a whole bunch of new writers and would-be writers out there as well. And then what about the focus of your writing in the coming year? Do you have another big um, like book-length project in mind, or are you focused more on continuing your um, short-form work in the outlets you've been publishing for? Yeah. So a mix of both. I'm definitely continuing the magazine writing and continuing working my beat, so working on stories about Um, maternal health and about um, the politics around uh, reproductive rights. And then I do have, there there are some things that I'm playing around with for long, for a book length project. I'm not quite ready to talk about it yet, but I will say that I'm, it, it feels, there are stories here in the Cincinnati area in the greater Cincinnati area that I'm really interested in pursuing um, that I want to take some time to really dig into, particularly like look into the historical record around some neighborhoods in Cincinnati. Um, so I'm excited to use the, the library as a resource for that. So if you are listening, um, visit the library's website and the Library Foundation's website and look for the Writer in Residence landing page. And I would guess that if not in December, for sure in January, they will put up um, lots of information on what Danny specifically has in store for the year. There will be a whole calendar of when her office hours will be, uh, when her workshops will be. All of that should be set um, fairly early in the year, and it will all be on one handy uh, landing page on the website if you just look for the Writer-in-Residence tab or link. And um, she will be, starting in January, hosting this very podcast and blogging Um, I think it'll probably still be twice a month on the main blog on the library's website. So that's where you can find her. Um, Are there social media handles that people could follow now, Danny, if they'd like? Yep. Um, I'm on Twitter at drmclean, D-R-M-C-C-L-A-I-N. It reads as Dr. McLean. I'm not a doctor. Those are my (laughs) initials. Um, And then I'm on Instagram at Danny underscore McLean. Well, congratulations, and I'm so excited to see what you do with the program and hope to see you around town this year. Jessica, thank you, and um, congratulations to you on an incredible year, and thank you for um, just uh, building this legacy of the writer-in-residence and leaving a blueprint for ways to make it successful. It's been an honor to be a part of it, and you're going to be great. 
Thanks. I can't wait to talk to you a year from now and see what your experience was like. Same. Thanks so much. All right. Good luck. Thank you. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Jessica at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer-in-residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.